This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Hi, everyone. This is Raghu Marcus from the Be Here Now Network. So today I want to introduce a guest podcast from a, one of our family members, Roshi Joan Halifax, who's a, a longtime friend of Ramdas and ours. And uh, we have a, a wonderful talk that she gave with Ramdas in this particular uh, part of the uh, talks that they gave. It was a series called Living and Dying in Everyday Life. And uh, Roshi starts the ball rolling here with uh, some tremendously insightful uh, comments. And basically, this talk was given to care to a caregiver's group of people who care for the dying, people going into transition. This was on Maui a number of years ago. And uh, I can't think myself of a more authentic teacher than Roshi Joan Halifax. I've known her for many years, but only after, only, say, the last, oh, five or so years, we have spent uh, a good amount of time together. And I have really been impressed around her in just the insight that she has into the practicality of how we can live day to day, living and dying in everyday life. What a good title. In this particular talk, she, t- she says, how do we confirm our inherent strength to uphold ourselves in the midst of any conditions to practice or realize fundamental equanimity? And stay absolutely tender-hearted, feeling the world with compassion, karuna. And that's the that's a central uh, piece of what this whole talk is about. And she really, really delivers here. Also, we are. She talks about being plagued by fear. How about this? Is this not something that we all are bump into in our day-to-day lives? Fear in the experience of a separate and solid self, which we need to define and defend. Do we not do this day to day? So it's about how to reverse the dynamic of the defended heart. Uh, So this talk also has a 
really, really great breath meditation that uh, we're we're including. Just watch out driving while you're listening to this and don't go into outer space around the meditation. And uh, there's one other quote that she gives from a lama. She doesn't identify the lama, unfortunately. I wish I knew who it was about love. Love is a meltdown that reestablishes a more unified base of brilliance, goodness, and sadness. I love that quote. Oh, boy. And she talks a lot about strong back and soft front, which is, uh, well, I'll leave it to you to listen to this, and you'll, you'll, she gives a really great explanation of what she's talking about. It's around, uh, around dealing with the fears that we have and staying equanimous, equanimous, having equanimity day to day. And all of this is really part and parcel with what we are trying to uh, present day to day on Be Here Now Network. And uh, in fact, it just reminded me of this course that uh, is going to come out through our uh, smartphone app in September. And uh, in, well, I don't know, a couple of months uh, around life in balance. And uh, certainly this particular topic and this particular talk where she talks a lot about as I just quoted before, fundamental equanimity. How do we have a life in balance day-to-day where we can stay in an open-hearted place, where we really have compassion for those around us and for what is going on in this very, very tough world? So, so much suffering uh, by so many people in so many different areas of the world. And, and of course, as we are in this major polarized uh, political situation this year with the election year here in 2016. So I'm really uh, happy to present uh, Roshi as our first guest uh, podcaster, basically, guest teacher from our family, uh, Ramdas's family. And, uh, oh, by the way, in uh, Ramdas gives a wonderful, uh, you'll hear him just a little bit in this. Uh, he, uh, uh, this, this first part had mostly uh, talks by Roshi to, uh, to this particular group, but he gives a wonderful talk, short uh, talk around forgiveness, which is so excellent. I wanted to actually excerpt it uh, as its own thing. It's just uh, fabulous. So again, really happy to have Roshi as uh, as our first offering uh, doing these guest podcasts. We're going to have a, a quite a few people doing them, people that you've heard of, maybe some people you haven't heard so much about. And uh, as our family expands further and further in the Be Here Now Network, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and, uh, of course... Ramdas and Krishnas and Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, Lama Suryadas and myself with Mind Rolling, and Chris Grasso and Danny Goldberg. So here you go. Enjoy. Roshi Joan Halifax, basically featuring Ramdas, living and dying in everyday life. It's very wonderful to be 
uh, here in Maui with the Maui spirit so present. It's fun. And um, Seichi, who is uh, our host, thank you so much, Seichi. I invited him to um, to come to our temple at Upaya because although we do over a hundred days of practice a year, it's also fun. And it was just like that feeling. Um, that many of us had last night after having borne witness to each other's suffering and stayed in that presence, a lot of energy got released. You know, a lot of holding energy was liberated. And uh, I think those of us who didn't escape <laughs> um, had a nice heart, a good heart at the end of the day, because that's really what our practice is about. How do we confirm our inherent strength to uphold ourselves in the midst of any conditions, to practice or realize or actualize fundamental equanimity and stay absolutely tender-hearted, feeling the world, compassion, karuna, so these two qualities, as Ramdas and I have suggested, are essential if we're going to not only be caregivers, but sustain the craziness of this world. And often we've got the directions backwards. Instead of strong back, soft front, we have strong front, soft back. We're plagued by fear, fears which are conscious and fears which are unconscious. And dying people are also uh, subject to fear. Fear, of course, is in that experience of a separate and solid self which we need to define and defend. But when that sense of Connectedness is present, like when we sing together, which, by the way, science has again verified that one of the most powerful activities to produce certain qualities of the mind and heart and also certain areas of the brain being activated, which are extremely areas associated with extreme positiveness, is the experience of singing and chanting as a collective but I even think doing it alone is pretty good too. (laughs) So this work that we're doing together is just opening a small door um, for some of you. Some of you have the door wide open. It's Maui after all. But it is for many of us uh, a chance for us to explore reversing the dynamic of the defended heart and the soft back, a back where, which is a metaphor for fear, for non-equanimity. And, you know, even our spirituality can be put out there as a defense. I mean, there are times when um, 
that smile that you flash at somebody, which is so reassuring to your patient, is subtly saying, I don't want to be intimate with you. Do you know that one? (laughs) 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 Or our ideas become a defense which are based, our ideas based in how things should be from the spiritual perspective, from the Buddhist or Hindu perspective, or, or from our great gnosis, which we've concretized and made repeatable by wrapping language around it. It's kind of interesting how we reify the self. A wonderful uh, Lama said, um, love is a meltdown that reestablishes a more unified base of brilliance, goodness, and sadness. Now, it could be that um, some people here don't want to allow the sadness to be present. There's an expression in uh, Japanese, and Seiji, forgive me for... Uh, my bad translation. But it's been a very meaningful one to me. It's mono non aware, which means the slender sadness. It is that pre-experience, if you will. It is the experience before the big non-sad experience where the heart is broken. You look out in the world and you like Avalokiteshvara, who invited all suffering beings onto this raft that he took to the other shore. And he had liberated all suffering beings. And then he turned around to bid adieu to the world and he saw that the world had filled yet again with suffering beings. And he broke into a thousand pieces 10,000, 84,000 pieces, which is an n-dimensional number. An infinite expression of differences in the medium of compassion and how it can be expressed. There just is no end to suffering. And yet our vow is about actualizing compassion to understand that it is a non-dual experience. Not just of the suffering of the world, but this is the experience that brings us, as the brain research has shown, into the experience of action, of activity, where ultimately compassion becomes non-referential. It is just how you are in the world. The right hand just takes care of the left, which is like what happened when my father was dying. And in his final phase of active dying, before he lapsed into the great quietude, before death, where he was flailing and his arms were in tattered, tatters and blood was trickling out of his mouth because he was biting his tongue and it was just awful and I put my hands on either side of his head 
And I just said, thank you, Daddy, for six hours. And somehow that uncoiling that happens in the active dying process for so many where the whole organism is spasming completed itself before he actually entered the mystery by dying. And suddenly he let go. And there he was in the great peace before death. A huge blessing. So it is that level of spontaneity. You know, no book is going to I mean, I would have felt stupid saying, go into the light. <laughs> Which is a great thing to say, if that's authentic for you. One has to really operate out of an authentic heart. Not out of the script of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which we love, out of the script of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's phases, out of my script. You know, I have a 400-page manual on how to do this stuff. No, all of the work is about developing this strong back, soft front, equanimity, compassion, openness, and authenticity, the strength to really be who you really are in the deepest sense. Kind of like I feel, Melissa, you and you, what's your dad's name? What's your name? You guys are cool. <laughs> really. I wish I could have gotten, <laughs> I wish I could have gotten my dad to something like this, I'll tell you. <laughs> really. This father-daughter thing is precious. It's a great treasure. Very, very wonderful that you can be together so in such an undefended way and your father enters into, you know, the adventure of his phase shift, however it's going to express itself with you as a partner and his mother, your mother there and his wife there and just the good journey into not knowing. Yeah. So what I'd like to do is to invite us uh, into that practice today. And I'm going to ask you to put down your pencils and your papers. And come off the back of your seats if you have the back to do so. Some of you have back problems um, or aren't used to it. But feel... Those of you for whom it is okay, with your feet on the floor or if you're sitting on a cushion, and if you're more comfortable laying down, that's fine. It's whatever's going to work. Find a position for your legs um, that are really going to support you where you're not going to have to change your position, move your body. You are a still vessel through which change passes. like the sky. The vast sky does not hinder the clouds from flying. And your feet are on the floor because, you know, this work, if they can be on the floor, or it's your sit bones really on the floor, this work entails deep groundedness. So I really want you to have a sense of gravity 
and put your attention into your feet. And you know, if you don't want to do it or you're kind of looking around or some kind of little thing is going, notice that. And see if you can learn to direct your attention, to guide it, instead of being at the effect of it, grabbing this idea, that idea, like a monkey, jumping from branch to branch. Guide your attention as per your intention. Usually we don't close our eyes completely, but let's do that now. We usually leave them a little open so the threshold between the outer world and the inner world becomes the whole field. But let's close our eyes for just a minute as we're guided through shifting the attention from area to area of the body because the body really conditions the mind. See if you can feel the earth supporting you. Feel the strength of gravity in the body. It's really important to be grounded in this work. And this reflects our experience of mental stability, which we can cultivate through focused attention by directing our attention at one object or another. In this case, to the soles of your feet or to your sit bones. Notice if you don't want to do it. And see if you can liberate that resistance. Just let it float away. And when thoughts come that really attract you, like a doorman, you can kind of smile at them, but you don't have to follow them into the hotel. I'd like you to shift your attention to your back. This spine, which is conductive, flexible to whatever extent is your situation that has the strength hopefully physically but at least metaphorically to uphold you in any situation to see that that kind of strength is the strength to love all people equally Appreciate that quality within the body, but also within the mind. That strength gives you dignity. 
It's the strength that makes it possible for you to really open your heart, not to be collapsed over. The source of life and your lungs, your inspiration. So appreciate your spine, please. You know, bless it. Feel the grace of that strength. Now firmly and gently switch your attention to the front part of your body, feeling the soft tissue of the front part, the rib cage barely guarding the heart. Lungs, stomach, liver, pancreas, Guts, this tenderness in the front part of your body, soft front, which makes it possible for you to really feel the world. Compassion. Strong back, equanimity. Soft front, compassion. Resistance is there, or thoughts are attractors for you. Don't push them away. Just simply don't invite them to tea. Gently and firmly let the attention come back to the breath. Now gently move your attention to the in-breath and the out-breath. How precious this breath. Our life hangs by it.
And you can say the Ram on the out-breath or count or notice the sensation of the in-breath and the out-breath. But that out-breath is the last breath that you will experience at the end of your life. So bringing a slightly deeper attention to the out-breath and having the out-breath qualified by the experience of mercy or kindness or love or compassion or bliss. Perhaps we'll let you ride out on that vehicle. And it is a process of really training ourselves into that sensibility that we just naturally let go into this quality of mind of bliss or joy or rapture or total surrender or letting go or kindness on the out-breath. And when thoughts or strong feelings or sensations arise and take you away from this treasured object of concentration, bless them and let them go and return your attention gently to your breath. And don't make the blessing long, please. Just a hello, old friend. And return gently to the breath. Thank you. And in our practice, we say, may the merit of this practice penetrate into each thing in all realms and benefit all beings. Could anybody share their experience with the deep breathing? Um, I was rather surprised because I, I was rather surprised because you were talking about love and 
kindness on the out-breath and all that came to me was forgiveness Mm -hmm. and to be forgived and I just couldn't stop crying Mm -hmm. which is very deep for me Mm -hmm. thank you in your introduction you reminded us about the fact that the Buddhist philosophy is that we're all doing it together that any gains that I have are shared with you and everyone else. And that was always the thing that attracted me to Buddhism. During this practice, as I focused on my out-breath, all I could feel was this huge ball of heat mm. in my chest. And, uh, and then it just spread throughout my, my being. And it was... Quite wonderful. Thank you. My mind felt love and my heart felt guarded. And my head started to judge that and I let that go. And then what? And then I let that go. And then? And then there's a, there's a tension. I really notice my intercostal muscles are tight. My back also is hurting and I'm wanting to support it, but more just noticing that there is a a tension in my chest that is, I don't know what it is, but it's there. So it does, there is, feels like a separation between the love that I feel in my thinking and where my heart is right Mm -hmm. now. How it can, feels like it could also change at any moment, but it is where it is. But how great you noticed that. Mm-hmm. Thank, Thank you. you. It was just a beautiful meditation for me. And um, the punchline of it, the very end, was um, I felt it physically. And it was like I have an elephant on my chest and a monkey on my back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's a... Um, I think many of us feel that way. So again, like our sister here, it's so great to notice where we're at in any given moment. And, you know, it's not to feel that we have to get rid of the monkey on our back or even tame it or liberate it. That's great. Wonderful aspiration. And if they don't, wonderful. Yeah. I think sometimes um, we try to hurry along the process of transformation 
change or liberation instead of just being with the elephant and the monkey. And then I bet Bodhi when you just hang out with the elephant and the monkey, then they become Hanuman and Ganesh. (laughs) But it's great that you noticed. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, meditation. I had uh, sensations in my hips. And uh, what my mind was saying was, do I have the strength to be in the process? Mm -hmm. And, um, well, I answered myself. I said, yes. (laughs) But it uh, it brought up the um, dilemma of staying in the equanimity that you speak of in the midst of whether it's in front of a dying person or in the being in the insanity of of our world. Do I have the strength to continue to hold uh, myself? The compassion didn't seem to be a problem, so to speak, because I can't say every situation, but it was more the notion of enduring and I thought yes practice will do that (laughs) that was my conclusion so what will happen if you don't have the strength Uh, (laughs) um, I think a disappointment what will happen I'll feel disappointed Mm. And then what happens with that disappointment? What do you do with it? I mean, let me ask a question to everybody. Anybody know that kind of disappointment? (laughs) (laughs) So then? Well, my latter-day practice is forgiveness. I'm focusing a great deal on that. And that uh, brings me a lot of solace. Mm-hmm. Would you reflect on forgiveness for a moment? Forgiveness. Relieves your heart of anger, shards of negative feelings I find the concept of forgiveness I, 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 I had a power thing about forgiveness like the queen would give, forgive, you know, forgive, and and I thought of why do I have to give forgiveness? But then I started to realize that it was I have it was in my heart that I that I was forgiving. Mm. And it was 
making right, making a right, it's like chewing something and then you finally spit it out. Forgiveness is a doorway. And every doorway is also a destination. (laughs) Sharon taught us three... Did you want to say something? No, I just can't hear you at all. Oh. Could you turn that thing on? So I could just get a little... Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? No, I can hear you. (laughs) Can you hear me now? Yes. (laughs) I'd rather you not hear me. You know, I was, um, I've been staying at Ram Dass's, and uh, Ram Dass's good friend and an old friend of mine, Zalman Schachter, came to uh, visit the other day. And it was these two altar cockers. Is that how you say it? <laughs> altar cockers? Yeah. I don't know. They talk northeast. Altar cockers. It's old shits. Bullshit. <laughs> anyway, it was really great. And they were, you know, talking about death I mean, <laughs> and the whole thing. And um, so Dalman, who is the most divine, oh, if I hadn't take, taken vows of celibacy, <laughs> I'd sign up to be his sixth wife. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so... Um, he was talking about the after-death trip, and it was kind of—it was incredible. You, you know, so you die and you get dipped in the river of light, and then, you know, of course, immediately I could relate to that. I mean, that's the mind ground of our mother nature, the luminosity of boundlessness that arises at the moment of death. That most of us, ah, no. I can't handle it. And then he says, you end up on something like a highlight court, and your soul gets sort of bounced around like a highlight ball. And then when you finish that trip, and that sort of reminded me of the, you know, again, trying to find analogies, you know, maybe a little bit like being thrown around by the wrathful deities in that bardo. And then you get dipped in the river of light. What's so nice about this model, (laughs) they're all models, but what's so nice about it, and also nice about the Tibetan Book of the Dead's description, is that within every domain of attraction and revulsion, there's a, a little flash of the mind ground that you can identify with and exit. The exit's there. It's a very cool thing. You know, it's not like you're just sort of marching through the bardos like that. And it's like the six realms of existence. 
same deal within every realm of passion, aggression, ignorance, pride, and envy, and also our human situation, which has all of the other five. There's a bodhisattva standing ready to liberate you. There's your compassion in every state of mind that you fall into, (laughs) ready to free you up. So Zalman's going on with his Jewish model. And then, uh, so you get, after the highlight court, you get dipped in the river of light. It's it's beautiful. And then you get into the field of regret. (laughs) I mean, it's very Jewish. But um, (laughs) I can say that as a goy. No, I can't say that as a goy. (laughs) But anyway, it's a very Jewish thing that right in the middle of your, you know, after death journey, you end up in this kind of regret. I mean, it's sort of a bummer. And, you know, then he and R.D. went off to have a private conversation and left me in regret. (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> I just wanted to know if the Jews had a way out of that. I mean, I'm sure they got dipped in the river of light, but what happened in the field of regret? And then what happened after that? Guilt. <laughs> Guilt. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, that's settled that. So let me just say, as a nice Jewish Hindu, um, I would suggest you get your forgiveness done now so you don't end up in the field of regret <laughs> and have to deal with the sort of fires of, or the sort of the abyss of guilt. Hi. So, thank you. It's so much fun. You know, you guys, um, everything is context dependent. So um, I would not be having this conversation at the Mayo Clinic. (laughs) (laughs) The only way out is in. I mean, what, what several of you have done is to see what was going on. That's totally cool. Most of us, we're just going along with the undermutter, and we don't have the courage to really address our situation. We haven't trained our mind to be stable enough to see it. We haven't put ourselves into a situation where we're not being superficially entertained. <laughs> and, I mean, we're always seeking some kind of entertainment. Because who wants to, you know, deal with forgiveness and guilt and anger and disappointment? And, you know, I mean, what you said about the forgiveness thing is very close to what James Hillman talked about and something he wrote on betrayal. And there's the whole journey of dealing with issues of betrayal. But ultimately, it is betrayal is about self-betrayal. You know, so your husband runs off with another woman and you feel betrayed. Your beloved assistant steals all your money. (laughs) You feel betrayed. 
But ultimately, it is the feeling of deep self-betrayal that we experience because we haven't been able to hold this very well, and we've fallen into this contracted, gnarly state. And we betray ourselves all the time in sitting with dying people. I remember once I called up Ram Dass, and I thought, my God, I really bummed this person's death. Remember that? I thought... Holy mackerel, this is awful. I thought I was doing my best, and it got weird. Now, how many of you have been fired around the dying process? Not not fired like that, John. <laughs> right? Come on. Fired. You're with a dying person, and they didn't want you to be with them anymore. Could have been your parent. Could have been your Uncle Schmoody. Could have been, you know, as a hospice volunteer or a doctor or a nurse, a social worker, and the dying person said, I don't like you, get out of here. Come on, raise your hands. Yeah. That's, that's a very tough thing to go through. Because you're there really with the best intentions to serve. And they think you're not doing a good job. And maybe you goofed up. Like, you know, I remember the time I, a young man who had uh, AIDS-related cryptosporidium, his mother called me and said, oh, my husband, uh, my son is dying, come. So I went and sat with him, but I hadn't eaten. And my stomach was growling. And here's this guy who can't really eat, who can't, you know, is just having constant diarrhea, listening to my own digestive processes. And he said to me, it was like, ooh, I don't need one more person like you. I said, oh, you know, you're probably right. But let's just sit with that for a minute. And he did end up firing me. His mother was so desperate not to really deal with this situation that she kept bringing, you know, it's one compassionate stranger in after another who got fired. Or my friend Stuart, who trained with me years ago and was a philanthropist, and he's in a big medical center in Chicago. Remember Stuart? You know, oh, and he always said, I've known him 35 years. When I'm dying, I really want you there. So I got the word from his partner. Stuart's dying. I happened to be flying to New Hampshire to Mary Hitchcock Hospital to do a presentation on this stuff. So I left a little earlier and walked into Stuart's room, and Stuart went, Get her out of here! Okay, so I worked with his girlfriend who'd heard that line before (laughs) and the nurses who were all traumatized (laughs) because they heard that line. And I, I, you know, but I had to deal with feelings of not being adequate for the situation, either of them and other occasions when no matter how smooth internally you feel it can be that someone perceives there's incongruity or this is too much or not now and you're you have to go 
The dying patient always takes the lead. And then you have to deal with your feelings of having not done a decent enough job. You know, why couldn't I just Ram Dass in and just sort of bliss him out? And, you know, we'd just be in unit of consciousness, and then he'd die there. So all these... So it's very powerful to stay on top of this particular hairy beast, which is self-betrayal. But then when you sort of see there's no self, then the whole issue kind of becomes a non-issue, except when the self prevails. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I have a question regarding or, or the possibility of of that person really wanting you there and having gone through this with my mom when she was leaving and my dad when he left. But if someone knows that they're leaving And even though they want a loved one there, I didn't experience what you did, which could be quite traumatic, but could there be the possibility that just seeing someone who's come to help them with love triggers an enormous fear within them that says, it could be time and and they might not be ready. Could this be? The question is... What happens when a dying person, in a certain way, doesn't really feel they're ready to die and a caregiver comes in specifically to presence active dying or the dying process and it triggers in the patient or the dying person a huge fear because suddenly they know, I'm in hospice. That means I've got six months to live, which is, you know, it's or six days, which is optimistic. I think you deal with the fear. deal with what is you wouldn't have come in you wouldn't have come in were it right the right time what if you meet you're met by complete resistance an absolute wall I think you uh, help the person go inward. How do you do that? By you going inward. Mm-hmm. Sit down in the room and go inward. And what if they aren't able to follow you in. 
if I think if if uh, my presence is is disturbing to them, I would go out. Mm-hmm. But if I keep going deeper in myself. Thanks. You're welcome. What would you do? The same. The same. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.